We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Let's open up there. And man, we have to pray because this is probably one of the toughest chapters I have ever studied or taught in my whole life. And I've been alive for 25 years now. So um, this is really tough, man. So let's pray one more time. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would use it for your glory. And just help us, Lord, help me to be a faithful messenger. Bless your people, Lord. Encourage them. And use this not just as a, as a time of information or academia, Lord, but let it be a time truly uh, that you could give us what it, what it means. Uh, and Lord, show us how to, uh, how to apply it in our, in our life. Uh, I love you, Lord. I thank you. I pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, yesterday my wife was sending a text message for me. And I don't know if you guys ever have that. You have a friend who's, or someone who's sending a text message for you. And I, I'm just one of those guys, like, I'm like, man, make sure you say it like I would say it, okay? Okay, before you send that text message, um, tell me, what did you put, put down there, you know? And, uh, and then the Lord reminded me, that's how he is with messengers or messages, you know? How when you're teaching the word, how God is like up there and God is here, he's saying, make sure you say what I want you to say, you know, because I could relate to that when someone might misrepresent you. And so today we're, we're in this chapter, and it's a, it's a very tough chapter. It's Daniel 11. We're just going to go through 1 through 35, and I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible. How many of you here like history, just out of curiosity? Okay, if you don't like history, you might as well leave now, okay? This is one of those few times where we'll let you leave um, early, but it's going to be uh, one of those history lessons. And basically what it is is God giving a lot of details about the future. He's sharing that he knows the end from the beginning. And not only does he know the end from the beginning, he's in control. God rules. And man has an element of rule, but God always overrules. And man does what he does, but God allows things. Everything gets filtered through the sovereignty of God's power. And so he's not the author of evil, but he allows evil. And basically, when you have a good understanding of how God is, all the things that happen in your life and all the things that happen in this world that we live in, there's a lot of evil going on. But you, do you know, do you realize how bad it would be if God wasn't there restraining? I mean, you know, like you think of that one bad thing that happened to you today and you're like, man, where was God? Well, he stopped the other million bad things that would have happened to you. But that one bad thing that happened to you, you've got to know it's actually for your good that those stumbling stones will actually turn into stepping stones, that those tragedies over time will turn into triumphs. And that's the way we have to see God, sovereign and in control, and all the things that are going on in the world today. And we see Iraq, and we see Israel, and we see Jerusalem, and we see our nation, and, and all the things that are going on personally. It's just reading the book of Daniel, it's a reminder that man, the Lord, is in control. The Lord is on the throne. The Lord is working out his plan. Even though we're doing our thing, he's doing his. And so it's a, a real neat um, truth, man, that I pray would comfort your heart. Because one thing I know is everybody's going through things. Everybody has trials. And you need to know 
that all this is going to work together for good. Right? Romans 8.28. You need to know the God that we have. Look what it says here in verse 1. It says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now this is one of those bad chapter breaks. It should have been in chapter 10. If you go back to chapter 10, uh, look at verse 21. uh, But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So you study 10 and you realize that the angel is talking. I'm 99% sure it's the angel Gabriel. Gabriel is talking to, to Daniel and he's telling Daniel that Michael, the archangel, is upholding his people. So it's the angelic realm. So then you pick it up in verse 1, and uh, he says in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, speaking of Gabriel, even I, speaking of Gabriel, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now there's a possibility that the him is in reference to Darius, because now this is going to go back three years earlier, the first year of Darius, So maybe Gabriel stood up to confirm Darius, but most commentators, most scholars believe that Gabriel actually stood up to strengthen Michael. Michael the archangel. Now if you remember earlier, Michael came to help Gabriel fight the prince of Persia who withheld him for 21 days. So you got Michael helping Gabriel. Now you have Gabriel helping Michael. You guys know how it is. Let's just say you got a friend. He's a better fighter than you, right? And that's probably how Michael is. I think he was a, a more buff angel, I think. You know, he was stronger. But still, that one helper makes a difference, right? And so, you know, here you see, like, the, like, like the veil is torn, and you see the, 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 the spiritual realm. What's going on here? What's going on here? And what you find is that there is a spiritual realm uh, that we cannot see, that is amazing when you really look at it, you know. Uh, when you look at this scripture right here, what we find is that Gabriel came to help Michael. And I don't know if you can visualize it, but angels and demons are literally battling for people, for churches, for nations within the spiritual realm. And even though you can't see him here with the eyes of your head, you need to be able to see it. You must be able to see it with the eyes of your heart. Uh, yesterday when I was reading the Bible in the morning, uh, in Second Kings chapter 6, I was reminded of this. If you guys remember the story when Elisha was surrounded by a band of Syrian soldiers. So you look out the, the house and man, you're surrounded by a band of Syrian soldiers. And so his, his you know, co-laborer, he said, Master, you know, and what's going on here? We're surrounded. And you know what Elisha did? He prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And then when he was able to see, he saw, it says in 2 Kings six seventeen, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I, I believe this, and I don't know if you know this, I really believe that angels are always surrounding us. Because the Bible says that the angel of the Lord encamps around his people. Here we have a glimpse of angels literally surrounding Elisha. 
And so I don't know if you guys uh, ever think about that, the spiritual dimension. Here I am. Here is an angel. On the other side of the angel is a demon. That demon wants to get to me. Why does he want to get to me? Well, there's a lot of things that that demon can do to me. That demon can lie to me. The Bible says he shoots fiery darts. They're arrows. He puts thoughts in my mind. Well, if that angel's there, he protects me from those fiery darts at times. Not only that, that that demon would like to get to me and deceive me and distract me and, and, and harass me and oppress me and put me into bondage if he can get to me. But see, you know, when there's that angel there, he protects me from all that. And, you know, we know, uh, that of course, there are certain things. He, they can't kill a person unless God gives them permission. Um, they can try to take, tempt a person and take their own life, commit suicide, John chapter 10, verse 10a. But what you find is this amazing thing. And this is why, you guys, if you can visualize this, this is why it's so important that you fight your fight with spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And you wear that helmet of salvation. You get saved. You give your life to Christ and you know you're saved. And then you put on that breastplate of righteousness. And that speaks of the imputed righteousness, but also the imparted righteousness. Because when you live a life of holiness, there's a protection over your heart. Because the devil would like to, to shoot that fiery dart in your heart. And so, you know, hate sin. Right? Hate sin. Love God. Don't let anything in. You gird your waist with truth. In one sense, that's protective. And then you take up that sword of the Spirit. In one sense, that's offensive. You gird your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that means you're always sharing the Lord. When you take up the spiritual armor, then you will have the protection that you need against the principalities and powers that are trying to invade your life. If you don't, you are a sitting duck. I was talking to my son on the way in here. He's all, hey, Dad, how about those guys that are out there and, and they, they, you know, they don't serve the Lord and they seem to have a pretty good life. And I'm like, well, number one, inside they're empty. Number two, the devil just leaves them alone because he knows they're on their way to hell. So there's this spiritual battle. We see this right here. And I believe a, a large part of winning that battle is wearing that that armor, but then you wrap it around in Ephesians 6. It says, praying always. And you are constantly praying for your wife and your husband and your children. And for those of you who have grandchildren, the ones that you are responsible to pray for, who are you responsible to pray for? Are you praying for them? When you look at the spiritual realm and you see that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, when you look at the spiritual realm and you realize that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, and you see the visual here with me and the angel and the demons trying to get to me, and then you realize if he gets to me, I'm probably in big trouble. That's why you have to prepare yourself for these things. And so... You know, we see this, uh, it's kind of cool. And, and another thing before we get into it, just as a side note, you see Michael helping Gabriel, but then you see Gabriel helping Michael. And do you guys see that? Um, and to me, just as a quick side note, it's cool how the angels help each other, how they're there for each other. 
and how we should be the same way. We need to help each other. We need to be there for each other. I, I love the scripture in First Chronicles 19:12 through 13. Joab is talking, and he's the general of the army of David. And this is what he's saying to his guys, you know, that, that are fighting with him. He said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. And then he says, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. I mean, the Lord do what is good in his sight. I just love that, you know, and that's the way it should be because we all have our ups and downs in life and we all have our, the Bible calls it an evil day. And if you see your brother in trouble, you be there for him. And prayerfully, when you're in trouble, you know, they'll be there for you. And you guys, we got to fight this fight. It's a war that we're in. And so, you know, we read in in verse 2, and now it begins to get into the prophecy. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all by his strength and through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And so now the Gabriel starts talking to Daniel about the future and uh, he speaks of the three more kings who would arise and then the fourth that would rule in the future. And you know, if you guys want to, and I'm going to share these things with you, and I, I'm sorry because it's a lot of like history and names that are difficult to pronounce, but if you want to, you can just go like to Wikipedia, or you can go to like you know get, get a history of Greece or, or, or Persia, and you'll just be able to look it up yourself. But I'll mention it to you because I know that you guys don't like homework, huh? Except for you like to apply it, but you're like, I'm not going to. He told me to read the book of Philippians and. You know, um, but I'll mention it to you, and I think we have even some screens that that mention the names uh, of the kings that would come. Now remember, Daniel was carried to Babylon in 605 B.C. He was there all the way until at least 536 B.C. So he wrote all along the way. So, you know, at, at the latest, he wrote his 536 B.C. And he starts mentioning all the different kings, and the fourth king uh, is a, a king that reigned in 480 B.C. So at least 56 years in advance. And so now we're just beginning. But he's prophesying, and he's talking about the kings. And we have the list of kings, Cambyses, uh, Pseudo-Smerdis, Darius I, Histophes, and Xerxes, who's the Hasserus of the book of Esther. And, uh, and so, you know, we read here in verse 2, again, that the fourth king is going to be richer than them all. And history tells us, sure enough, he was. And by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. You know, and so all you got to do is look it up in your encyclopedia. And what you find is this man, Xerxes, he was so wealthy that he ruled the empire from Ethiopia to India. And I believe we even have a, a picture of that, a vast map. And uh, he had a great passion to conquer Greece uh, with his army, they say, with his riches, he was able to raise up an army of two million men. Imagine that, right? And that's exactly what the Bible says. And then he built this navy, and then he invaded Greece. Now, here's where my son helped me out, because he knows more about this. I kind of wanted him to teach today, but he wouldn't do it. 
Anyways, he's all, Dad, yeah, this is what happened. I learned this in eighth grade history, whatever, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that the, uh, the Persian army, they had these big ships, and they went and they invaded Greece. And, but what happened was the Grecian army had small ships, and those small ships were more maneuverable, and believe it or not. And it's kind of funny because even the Persians, they, they, they burnt down uh, Athens, but the Greeks were smart enough to have already uh, left the city. They all fled to an island. And anyways, long story short, those small ships defeated the large ships. The two million uh, men army of Persia was defeated, just like we read in the Bible. And they say this was the bloodiest battle in history. And uh, when you read it, what you find is all that happened between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther, right around 480 B.C. And so after Xerxes suffered the loss, then he came home, he was angry, but he sought relief from his wounded pride by his harem. And again, that's when Esther entered the picture. And so you read in verse 3, And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, or literally at the height of his power, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity. In other words, it, it wouldn't be his children, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. It wouldn't be as strong as his kingdom, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And so this is speaking, I'm sure you know, about Alexander the Great. The Persians are not only unsuccessful in conquering Greece, they are eventually defeated by Greece in a large scale. And this is led by a young man known throughout history as Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, if you remember, he set out to conquer the world at 20 years old. Okay, you remember when you were 20 years old? You wanted to conquer the world? That's what Homeboy did at 20 years old, man. It took him 12 years to conquer the world. Imagine that. And I think we have a picture of his uh, 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 battles. Uh, here in verse 3, he's called a mighty king, this mighty king that arises. And he, and he does whatever he wants. Basically, no one stops him. And in studying Daniel, we've already seen other prophecies about Greece and even Alexander himself. If you remember the image we saw in Daniel chapter 2, Greece was the thighs of bronze. And what we find is that after he conquered the world, they say he wept. Because there was no more world to conquer. Literally, when the Grecian army went into India, there wasn't even a battle. I mean, they would just went through India and people were just fleeing. They were surrendering. There wasn't even a fight. And so the fight against Greece was gone. And so Alexander, uh, history tells us, he went, he got drunk, he, fell asleep, he got wet in the rain, he fell asleep with his clothes on, he got pneumonia, and he died at 323 B.C. And so after he died, his sons were killed, and then Greece was divided up into four sections. At first there was five, but then one uh, general was defeated, and so uh, over the extended period of time, it was four sections of Greece. And we see the number four connected with this prophecy throughout the scriptures. Notice again, we read here in verse 4, And when he has arisen, or at the height of his power, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds. Okay, so when did Daniel write this? You guys know this, right? 536 B.C., at the latest. So now we're talking about 330 B.C., so about 200 years in advance Daniel wrote this. Okay, 
Now, I don't care how much of a liberal, you know, whatever, Christian you are, or some guy who teaches over at one of the liberal colleges, most of them now are, you know, a lot of the guys at APU, a lot of the guys at Biola, supposedly a Christian college, very, very few of them are conservative. It doesn't matter, however, how much of a liberal you are. You cannot get around the fact. I mean, you can give Daniel maybe an extra 20, 30, 40, 50 years at most, but 200 years? No, he is given very specific details because God knows the end from the beginning because God is trustworthy. You see, Chuck Smith said, that the reason why God wants you to know the future and God wants you to know prophecy and God wants you to know that He knows the future and He rules the future is so that you would live for Him today. And all these things, God said, this is exactly what's going to happen. You know, we've seen this particular prophecy numerous times in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, and after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings, there's the number four, of a bird. The beast also had four heads. And so this is the four generals that would eventually take over Greece. We saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 8, verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, just like we read here. And sure enough, a few years after Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. And we see these guys, uh, Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. And it gives you the different areas uh, of their rule. And another general, uh, Antigonus, was in power temporarily because you can look up some of the maps and some of them include him and some of them don't because his reign was brief. He was ultimately defeated. And so it's fascinating just to know this, that God knows the and from the beginning. And in verse 5, it, it gets pretty juicy, man. Look at verse 5. And the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. And so now we begin uh, the wars and the chronicles of the primarily the two kingdoms of Seleucias, the Seleucias, and the Ptolemies. Now, Seleucia would be Syria. Some would include Babylon and Persia. It's going to be the northern kingdom. And then you're going to see the southern kingdom, which is uh, primarily known as Egypt. Even though it was ruled by certain individuals, dynasties, what we find is these guys are the ones that identify them. And so this is these guys reign. Remember, Alexander died in 323 B.C. It took uh, a while for the dust to settle. These dynasties rose up in 280 B.C. 280 B.C. Now, about 30 years later, what we find is that the, the king of the south, he gives his daughter to the king of the north. And we're going to see as we go through here how this whole thing went down. As a matter of fact, I think we have a map of these dynasties. Uh, do we? Are the maps working, you guys? 
I wish I could see them. I, my mom used to have eyes in the back of her head, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can see it, but you have the Seleucid Empire, and then you have the, the Egyptian Empire, or the Ptolemies, Ptolemic. Okay, in between these two empires, who's there? Jerusalem. Right in between them, right smack dab in the middle. I mean, they're literally going back and forth. They're fighting in, in this right in between Israel. It's amazing to me. And we're going to see why God mentions this. And it's just to me, it's, a, it's mind-boggling, you know. But um, we read here how they would eventually join forces. Again, this took place uh, in about 250 B.C. As was often done in those days, the rulers used marriage as a means of forming strong political alliances. History tells us that in 250 B.C., in order for the marriage to take place, uh, Ptolemy III demanded that Seleucus II divorce his then current wife, Laodis. Now let me see if I can explain this to you without losing you, because I don't want to lose you guys. So this is what happens, you know. He says, hey, you know, let's make an alliance. You marry my daughter. But wait a minute, time out, I'm already married. Well, if we're going to have an alliance, then you need to divorce her, divorce Laodice. And so uh, he did. He divorced her and he married uh, Berenice. And then what ended up happening was uh, her dad from the Ptolemy, he died two years later. So the king of the Seleucids, he says, okay, well, your dad's dead now. And so he got rid of Berenice. Right, and he married, he remarried his uh, former wife, Laodice. And then what ended up happening was Laodice. She, you know how girls can be, right? She was vengeful, man. <laughs> Sorry, girls, you're the, you're better than we are. But here's what happened: um, she killed, she killed uh, his former wife, the one you know, Berenice. He killed you, man. You can do that to me. He, she killed her, and then she killed her husband. She poisoned him on the wedding day. Then. Uh, you know, what ended up happening. That's what we read right here. Look again, verse 6, And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of authority, and neither he nor his authority, right, because they were both killed, <laughs> right, shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. And so, like I said, you could just look this up. You can even look up some real uh, good Roman historians as well as Grecian historians. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It's amazing to see the drama in the dynasties. And so Berenice, the daughter that had gone over there for the alliance, uh, her brother gets mad, which is probably a good thing, I guess. So we read in verse 7 what happens next. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. And again, you guys, he's writing 200 years in advance. And he's telling you all these details about the wife who gets you know, the daughter who gets married with this alliance and then, you know, the murder that takes place, not only hers, but her, her dad who dies and and her husband. And and then, you know, what ends up happening is the brother, you know, rises up and he begins to reign and then he starts a fight and he's victorious. 
And, and you know, and then he comes back and he brings all this, these precious metals and even the gods of Egypt. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. History tells us the two kingdoms ignored each other for some time. But what happened was uh, Berenice's brother Ptolemy III Eurydides. So he succeeded his father and he set out to avenge the death of his sister. He was victorious over the Syrian army. And he put uh, Laodice, now that, that, remember the girl earlier who I told you killed her husband and her, her for, well, her husband's former wife? Now, that, now he kills her, okay? And, uh, and then he returned to Egypt with many spoils. Jerome, okay, who is a historian, he tells us that he took back 40,000 talents of silver and 2,500 idols from the northern kingdom. So this is history, just like the Bible said would happen. And so what ends up happening in verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through them. And then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Now we move to about 240 B.C., and uh, what we find is that um, Seleucus attacked Egypt but was defeated. He returned home in shame. He then died. And then his sons uh, took up the throne. In particular, Antiochus III, the great, who ruled from 223 to 187. Now, he succeeded him. Now, it's interesting to note what we read in verse 10. Notice right there it says that we pass through, overwhelm and pass through. And what do you mean pass through? Well, he's talking about Israel passing through Israel. And they're just passing through back and forth through Jerusalem. Now, you got to remember this, you guys. Okay, did they have Fox News back then? No, they didn't. They didn't have, uh, you know, the Internet. And so what you see here, what Gabriel is telling Daniel, is the prophecies that they can see, that they would experience. They might not know what's going on on the other side of the world. But they would know what's going on in their own history. So Gabriel's telling him these things for a reason, right? So that in those critical times in the future, they would trust the Lord and even know what he's called them to do. And I just wanted to pause on that for a second because that's the purpose of this whole thing. You're like, well, why are you just telling me the information that God knows the future so that you will trust him now, today? Are you living for the Lord? Today, are you ready for the return of Christ? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Do you really know the Lord? If the Lord came back today, according to 1 John 2.28, would you be ashamed? Do you not know that Jesus is coming? The Bible says that he's proven that he knows the future and he said that he's coming any day now. All the signs that we see going on right now, those are signs of the tribulation period. We're not going to be here when that happens. And so we're going to get raptured. He only wants you to know the future, that he knows the future. And there are certain things we do know about the future, but he wants you to know that he knows the future so that you will live for him today. And maybe you haven't been living for him. I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can start. Look at Mark, real quick, Mark chapter 14. And I want to show you this in action. Did you guys hear that Carl's Jr. has chorizo burritos now? 
I'm sorry. I, I, have, I don't go to Carl's Jr. because they have bad commercials. But I just saw that the other day. Mark 14, look at verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... Oh, I'm sorry. That's definitely not the right verse. Uh, yeah, it is. Okay. Um, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. So the disciples are saying, Hey, what do you want us to do? You know, um, where are we going to eat the Passover? And so the Lord said, This is what you got to do. Go into the city. And when you go into the city, you're going to see a man. You're going to meet a man. You're going to bump into a man who's carrying a pitcher of, of water. So the Lord knew the future, huh? And not only that, you know, a man carrying a pitcher of water in those days would be really noticeable because most of the ones carrying the pitchers of water would be who? The women. The women were the ones that carried the water. That's why I sent Shelly to get the water jugs, the five-gallon water jugs, because I think that's more biblical. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> It's funny. <laughs> it's funny to me how, you know, the Lord, and I think about this sometimes, I think about how maybe that was not the only reason that not only would it be a significant sight, but here's a man, whoever owns this house, whoever sent out this man to get the water, who knows better. He knows that they shouldn't be carrying the water. The guy should. That's why God gave them muscles, right? So anyways, all I'm saying is that the Lord knows the future, and he says, and when you meet him, this is what I want you to do. That's what he says next. And then he says, and uh, you go into the city, and you're going to see a man. He'll meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whatever, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher said, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So when you see this happen, when I, I'm telling you what's going to happen, follow that guy, okay, and go into his house. And you're like, whoa, you know, go into his house. That's kind of, that's got a big step of faith. I don't, you don't just go into people's house. Houses, do you? You guys don't normally do that. If you do, you're probably going to get arrested or maybe shot, right? <laughs> but in this case, because the Lord was telling them, this is how I know the future and this is what I want you to do, they did. Same thing with prophecy. God is saying, I know the future. I know I'm coming. And this is what I want you to do. And they did. And that's what we need to do as well. You know, back in, in Daniel, there's a lot of lessons to learn. You know, one of the things that I noticed here was uh, in verse 10, it said his sons would stir up strife. See that in verse 10? We see it twice, that his sons would stir up strife in the beginning at the end. And, you know, I, I think there's a lesson there as well. You know, you don't have to even the score. You don't have to make war. But a lot of people, man, they want to stir up strife. They want to bring it up. They want to stir it up when they don't have to. You know, Genesis 13, 7 through 8 is in a story about strife. It says, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's lot and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And so Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. You know, and there shouldn't be strife. It's okay. These guys were brethren too. They're from the Grecian origin. 
but they're fighting like crazy because they're stirring up strife. You don't have to bring it up. You don't have to stir it up. You don't have to have war. You don't have to even the score. But a lot of times I think we do. It's okay. You know, and with Abram, it is neat. I mean, it's okay. You know what? You and your herdsmen, you guys go over there. Right? And we'll be over here. That's cool. We're brothers, though. Don't, don't stir. You don't have to strive with me. And that's the way it should be. You know, the word in the Hebrew that's translated strife is used only 13 times in the Bible, and it's more frequently translated to contend or to meddle. And sometimes when we feel when we haven't been treated right, we like to fight. And when you're not treated right, okay, does that ever happen to you when you're not treated right? Okay, when you're not treated right, you have now an opportunity to be like Jesus, who was like a lamb. He didn't say anything. But then our pride comes in, and that's when we want to fight when we're not treated right. We don't have to be that way, you guys, right? Even when we don't know everything that's gone down, we want to settle it. Hey, I'm going to settle it. We want to meddle in it. We don't need to meddle in it. We're better off not stirring up strife. And this can happen to nations. It can happen to congregations. And it can happen in your house, right? You know, you ever have strife with your wife? Some of you guys here are going, yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. We need to work towards peace in your home and holiness. I like what Proverbs 17.1 says. It says, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. In other words, I'd rather eat breadcrumbs with a life of peace and serenity than filet mignon, right, with fighting and arguing and strife. But these guys, you know, they stirred it up. And in verse 11, it says, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail, for the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. And so, again, you know, i got to be careful that I don't give you guys too much information, but the king of the south in this verse, uh, Ptolemy IV, uh, Philopater, again, now we're looking at 204 B.C., he was the one driven back by Antiochus III, the Great, and Ptolemy IV came to meet him at the southern border of Israel. And Ptolemy was initially successful in delaying the invasion. Uh, many thousands were slaughtered. But after a brief interruption, Antiochus returned with another army, much larger, and he turned back the king of the south. And it's interesting, when you study this war, one of the things that stood out to me on this one was there were 73 elephants involved. Have you guys ever seen those movies where the elephants are, or maybe some of the movie where the elephants are there fighting? Um, this is one of those battles. And there are probably other ones, but this one stood out. Wow, there's elephants. Verse 14, Now in those times many shall rise against the south, king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves. Now we have Jewish mercenaries getting involved. In fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. 
But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. You see, Syria was not Egypt's only enemy. Um, there were also others. Uh, Macedonia joined in at this point. And the Jews got involved as well. They probably wanted to gain freedom, but it wasn't realized at this point. Antiochus then sought to consolidate control over Israel, which he then expelled the Egyptians. And we're going to see, you know, it's all part of the devil's plan of devastation. Um, right here it mentions the fortified city in verse 15, right? So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And history tells us that this refers to Sidon, which Antiochus captured in 203 BC. And he continued occupation in this land until 199, which we see this glorious land mentioned here. And again, at the end of verse 16 is none other than Israel itself. Now look at verse 17. Again, he shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. Now you guys know who that daughter is? If you guys studied it, this is Cleopatra. Okay, but it's not the Cleopatra that you normally see on the movies. Or that's Cleopatra the fifth. This is Cleopatra the first. So anyway, she goes in, and so she's not Egyptian. She's actually Greek in origin. She goes in, and it says he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. She goes in as a spy, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Basically, what ends up happening is she falls in love and she doesn't stay loyal to her dad, which I guess in one sense is kind of cool, huh? Like when my daughter gets married, I want her to be loyal to her husband at times if necessary. You know, uh, um, my prayer is that he's a Christian, that has served the Lord, but man, you know, the Bible says that when you get married, right, you leave your father and mother, you're joined to your wife, and then the two become one flesh. And so... You know, in looking at all these things, when I see this right here as tensions are going on, you know, I'm just, and we're going to have to close at this point because it's already 1030. You know, I was telling my son, I said, you know, why do you think that, that this, all this is happening? Okay, here's the thing, and we'll close with this. Remember Daniel was reading the Bible? Remember that? You guys were there? Were you there when that? No, happened. no. Daniel was reading Jeremiah 29. And then, and then he discovered, when he looked at his calendar, that the years were almost up. And, and so, you know, he said, hey, we're about to be free. But he didn't just kick back and just say, okay, God, you know, let lightning fall. No, he started praying. And he started confessing his sin. And he started, like, praying the Bible and getting involved and making a difference. And I believe that God looked down the corridors of time. God saw Daniel praying. God saved Israel because of Daniel. I think Daniel was very instrumental in that. And, and, then, and then here's the thing that I see now. And so Daniel knows how that works. And so now Daniel's writing prophecies. Now he's writing prophecies. And it's all about the things that are going on in the north and south of Israel. That all the things that they're able to verify, to validate whether or not these prophecies are true, and God's and God just 100%, boom, 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 boom. And then we're going to see later what ends up happening is Antiochus Epiphanes, he's like, the, the, like, a, like a Hitler. 
he just starts, you know, 40,000 Jews dead, 100,000 Jews dead. You know, he starts desecrating the temple in 167 B.C. He starts just annihilating the Jews, and he really tries to Hellenize them. He really tries to destroy them. Basically, he tries to make them like the world that they live in. And so I think what Daniel was thinking is if they read what I'm writing, Lord, if they read what I'm writing, because I'm going to write all about this, then they'll do the right thing. Because Daniel writes in Daniel 11:32 that if you go the way of the world, you're going to be judged. But he says there in verse 32, but those who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. And so I'm, I'm thinking that what happened was Mattathias, the high priest, he read the book of Daniel and he got courage. And he made a stand. And then his sons, he had five sons. One of them was Judas Maccabees, Maccabeus. They rose up and they brought a revival to Israel. And that's what the Bible's intended to do. You guys, as we read this story today, and the same thing is true, Daniel 11:32. You know, we're living in some interesting times where the world is trying to Hellenize the church. And, and when I say Hellenize, just you know, the first hell, that I think of that word hell. The world is trying to bring hell to the church. And you can be a Daniel. We can make a difference. We can rise up. I want to do great exploits for God. I want to resist the devil. I want to be strong. How? Well, he tells you there in Daniel 11:32, know your God. Know him. Get to know how sovereign he is, how powerful he is, how much he loves you. How he said he will never leave you. How he died for you on the cross. Get to know your God. Spend time with him in the word and prayer. Just you and him. No phone. Because if you're too much on the phone, then you become phony, right? You know, just you and the Lord. And, and, and you get to know your God. Get to know him. And then you watch what the Lord will do. As a matter of fact, that's how it all started. The, the Bible says that that's what salvation is in John 17 that we can know God. And then Jesus said in Matthew 7 that if you don't know him, then you're not going to make it to heaven. And so my prayer is that we all know him today. And if you don't, that today would be the day you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sorry we weren't able to get too far. Man, I, I we're in big trouble here, huh? <laughs> but let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, your love, your grace in our life. Oh, Lord, I I just think of the fact that you know the end from the beginning. Lord, how you are so detailed in proving your sovereignty. You are so, um, we are without excuse, Lord. There is no book like the Bible. There is no God like our God. No God like our God. You are the only God. You have proven yourself not only in the death and resurrection of your Son, but in this written word where we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy come to pass. And so, Lord, as a result of that, we today, I know my heart is just to lay it all down, Lord, just to surrender to you, to hate sin and to love you.
And Lord, I pray that you would do that in every person here, Lord, that you would just allow us, Lord, to experience a revival like never before. Bless your church and strengthen them. I pray with all my heart. And God, if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would save their souls. Lord, allow them to surrender to you. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you know, um, but he's tugging at your heart. And he's just saying, hey, it's time. It's time for you to get your life right with me. It's time for you to surrender. Then today is the day of salvation. And today everything can change. And today your eternal destiny can change. You can actually be given life and heaven right here, right now. All you got to do is say a simple prayer. But you got to mean it from your heart. Admitting you're a sinner and you need a Savior and His name is Jesus. And so I just want to lead you in a prayer right where you are. If you want the Lord, you just pray this prayer. Just say, Lord, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned. But I turn from my sin and today I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your love and with your Holy Spirit and help me to live life as a Christian from this day forward in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 454 Remember that Jesus loves you.